This episode of Drama School Dropout is brought to you by High Productions' newest stage play, This Is Where We Get Off. This Is Where We Get Off follows the Moffat family through some of the most difficult days of their lives. Yvonne is seven months pregnant, her husband Philip is constantly disappearing and leaving dodgy phone bills behind, their 18-year-old son Lip is debating joining the army and trying to navigate his love life, and their dog-breeding, sex-toy-selling neighbour Rhonda is still doing her weekly shop in their kitchen. How will they cope with the unexpected arrival of an estranged family member? You can catch This Is Where We Get off in Glasgow at the Webster's Theatre on the 21st of April or at the East Kilbride Arts Centre on the 28th of April with more dates to be announced. Get your tickets now at www.highproductions.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Drama School Dropout. It's episode 64 and as per usual my name is Ingram Noble and I am your resident Drama School Dropout. And this week I am joined by an absolutely fabulous actress who played our favourite friend's acting agent. Please welcome to the podcast the wonderful June Gable. Drama School Dropout No graduation day Hello, how are you? You know, I'm very, very well, and I'm so excited to talk to you because Scotland is on my bucket list. And Come over. I would Come. <laughs> I'll give you the guided tour. Oh, great. Great. The amount of people I've told that, I'm going to need to book a couple of months off. So just just let me know when you're coming. Well, you know, you could do like a whole thing, like tourists. Yeah. You know, you could take us around a big bus full of people. I, I, I imagine that people have a lot more hectic schedules than me, though. So like trying to get everyone that I've offered a tour to. Um, I had Dinah Manoff from Greece on the podcast um, and she's like, oh, we're coming over. Like they're doing a whole thing about Greece at some of the Comic Cons in the UK Ooh. next year and I'm like I'll show you around and then I'm like oh I'm, one of those weeks is my exam week in uni so maybe not well um, you know I'm waiting for the friends comic-con I'd be on the on the plane but uh we haven't heard anything about that let's make it happen anyone yeah. listening out there I know you might not be able to get like the main six because they cost a couple of million a piece but like definitely do you know I, I always find as well that I'm always more interested in like some of the sub characters of friends like the side characters and I'm just yes. like uh, there's a whole there's a whole life uh, yeah behind uh, doing this show that I don't think many people are familiar with uh, no matter how many times you've been on the show it's like some kind of bizarre family where you are part of something that's larger than yourself yeah. and it was always like that for me every time I mean, and, and, and with me, it was very unusual because I played two characters on the on the series, which is not normal at all. I'm like, did no, you know right, that? Right. I know you played a staff. I played the nurse. I played an, a, a birthing nurse. Uh, did I not think know it was that. When, yes, it was the very early episode, one of the first couple. And I played a little nurse, much like myself. I wore a little glasses, not an extreme character like Friends. But it was after that, and of course, I had done a couple of shows for these producers, so they knew 
what I could do. And that was when they called me in for the agent after the nurse. Wow. I'm also now wondering how I didn't find that out while I was doing my research. <laughs> well, you, it would be easy for you to, to view it, I'm sure now in retrospect, because it was rather unusual. You don't usually ever uh, play two, yeah. two separate characters on a scene like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about Friends in a minute because I've got a lot of questions to ask you because it is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. But what I like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast to begin with is how did you get into acting and what was your first ever role? And it doesn't have to be a professional role. We all love a good school play story. Well, that's what it is. I mean, I was a very young child. I guess I was in the fifth grade. Uh, I was in ordinary public school. And um, I was cast in this character role, which upset me because I wanted to play the ingenue. And I was angry that I had to play this little character role that just popped in and out. And so what I did was I went to my mother's closet and she had unbelievably bizarre clothes. And I picked this extraordinary hat with flowers all over it and her silly high heel shoes and a ridiculous bag. And every time I came in and out as this character, Mrs. Parker, I crossed my eyes and made use this ridiculous voice, you know, like this. <laughs> and I got entrance and exit applause. And I guess I was addicted. <laughs> after that um i always love like i feel like the whole industry is based on what we used to do as children and i think that a lot of us forget that and we f- lose the childlike quality of what we do because essentially we're playing a game of make-believe and it's it's always lovely to hear that that's how people got started and then mm. especially with characters that you played and we'll talk more about things like that they are very like Estelle in Friends is such an amazing character and the way that you brought her to life, it it's very reminiscent of that sort of, well, there's no, there's no limits to what you could have done with that character. And I, I just find it absolutely just like, it blows my mind, like as an actor and somebody who's back at drama school. And I love like the fascinating, um, the fascinating psych- uh, psychological parts. Yeah, I'm saying the right thing. Like, we're currently studying like David Mamet and thinking about like the way that he acts with, oh, I'm going to forget the whole word now begins with an S. I, I understand what you're saying. If I can remember the word, I, and I know I will. You because you, what you're talking about is really the wonderful, you will, uh, but the, the most, the wonderful uh, dressing up and the wonderful creation of bizarre characters or real characters, characters that are close to life. I know that there were times when I did, for example, Candide on Broadway. I was in my 20s and I was very, very Stoicism. Young. Sorry I'm to interrupt you. Stoicism. Out. I just remembered the word. Oh, um, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, like okay. studying the Stoicism of it. I, I absolutely love it. And how to work that into a scene fascinates me. But I'll let you carry on. Sorry. <laughs> Well, that okay, now I got that word. I've got to look that word up. But anyway, um, um, when I was in Candide um, it, on Broadway, I was in that show for two and a half years. And I was playing a 90-year-old woman, and I was in my 20s. And of course, a lot of the technique that you learn at drama school, that, you learn, that I learned at Carnegie Mellon, uh, um, helped me. But I remember following people around on the street until I could find the right walk. Um, the right way of speaking. She ha- she was Polish, so I had to do a dialect. And I remember 
just just um, looking at every aspect of life until I could find the right blend of that yeah. character. It's always been. It's so fun. I, I love the psychological parts of things and trying trying to work it out. And then there's that magic moment where everything just falls into place. You've had the walk the nice for a couple is, of weeks. Yes, that's right. And the nice thing is, is that you can write a story of your character. You can write a story of their lives. What happened to them, for example, when they were children? Or what, and even if you're playing a broad comedy, you can do that. What happened to that character in the course of their lives? And what, what who were they married to? What kind of people are they? Attra- you know, that kind of thing. I love doing that. And I love doing it to an extent where it's starting to um, piss people off. I um, I wrote a show <laughs> in lockdown with one of my best friends um, who produces this podcast with me. And we we cast it and we, we are waiting to begin rehearsals in January. But as we were like casting it, we would, every time we cast a role, we would have like a meeting with them, like a one-on-one sit down meeting. And just the way the writing process worked for us, we had worked out a lot of their backstory because it was originally included in the script. And then we were like, not needed, not needed. We make this look like a big point and then we'd never talk about it ever again. So it it distracts from the main storyline. And I'm like meeting with these people and I'm like, should we tell her about the dead baby? Should we tell her about everything that's happened in her past? And my co-director's Heather's like, no, let them figure it out themselves. And I'm like, but we know what happened. We made these people. So yeah, I'm constantly getting told to shut up and let people figure out the character for themselves. Well, but what you're talking about is a very important process. You're talking about editing. And that is very important when you create a new work is that you understand the whole art of editing. Sometimes uh, you can edit something that's valuable and you'll put it back in. And a lot of times you'll edit something and it'll make the story better. Yeah. I, I just consider everything that we took out to still be part of the story. So I'm like, oh, that yeah. still happened to her 30 years ago. Should we tell her about it? And then my friend's like, no, let's not. Um, but like you said, you went to um, Carnegie Mellon and... I always like, I think, because we get a different perspective of this off of everyone. What was the biggest lesson that you learned while you were at drama school? Well, you know, I think that I learned that there's two different kinds of, of ways to go about this business. One is to really consider yourself a legitimate actor and go to a repertory theater and just do Shakespeare and, and classics and, and modern plays too. And the other is a commercial way where you want to do Broadway, you want to do television, comedy, or film. And it's very difficult to amalgamate both of those things. But at Carnegie, they kind of teach you that you can do that. So you can learn the technique, you can study lighting, you can study uh, acting techniques, classical techniques, modern techniques, playwriting, everything, cosmetics, prosthetics, makeup. And you can apply that to everything that you do. Much of the time in commercial theater, they want you as you are. They don't want you to play dress up with them. When you come up for film or television, and that will eventually bring me to my story about Friends audition. When you go up for something like that, they want to see you realistically. So they don't want to see you do anything like what they call dress up. Yeah. But I find that you can do it all. If you're a grounded person. I think you have to And you're grounded in your personality. Yes. 
Yes. And by the way, Andrew Carnegie was Scottish, wasn't he? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think he was. We'll take it though. Um, <laughs> you're talking about that. I um, I don't, I don't know how it is in the states, but at the moment, when when you're first entering the industry, you have to make a lot of your own theatre. Like you have to work for yourself for others to notice you to then say, "Hey, do you want to come and audition for my stuff?" So I'm. Like currently, like I said, I'm putting a play on. The whole weekend I've been painting photo frame. I'm like, I've got spray paint all over my carpet in my living room. Can't wait to like try and get that out. I'm well, it sounds like you're wearing a lot of different hats. Yeah. It sounds like you're a writer, an actor, you know, you're creating in a lot of different ways. Jack of all trades, master of none. (laughs) And that's what Carnegie kind of taught. That's the way that they taught you. Uh, I had a, a method acting teacher who I still am close to. I adore him. And he would get you to sort of dredge up personal emotions that you could use, uh, apply to any character. And then I had another acting teacher uh, in the same vein that taught you how to walk, how to talk, how to move, how to create a style uh, character. So, you you know, you you can do it all, but it's tricky. Mm -hmm. And in America... Uh, you know, sort of like um, uh, complimenting what you just said. If you're going to be noticed, what you must do, hopefully, or what you hopefully can do is work in the theater. And then when you work in the theater in New York, which I did as soon as I graduated, I was very lucky. And you work in the theater, you're seen, and then you can move, if you want to, to the next level of Hollywood, uh, television, film, where you then are in a different bracket. Yeah. So, but... First, you have to be seen in the theatre. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's very similar here. Um, you just have to make your own theatre to begin with, and then you get invited uh-huh. to be in somebody else's theatre. So, like at the moment, even though I'm not, I'm directing the show. Um, my co-producers in it, and we're sort of like, well, this is a great s- springboard into now us doing other things and getting other people to see us and. A lot of things that we've been really lucky for as cool people have read our play and have said it's really good. So we've had other opportunities just come from people who are respected in the industry saying, hey, these two have got something. And I, Well, I, many times I've done readings for plays uh, and playwrights that are just beginning like yours. Uh, Wendy Wasserstein for one and uh, Albert and Arado and, and many... Um, Many, many playwrights, I have done those initial readings for them, which really helps the playwright. You know, when you have good actors yeah. that can, you know, give you a lot of information from, from their point of view. Mm-hmm. The, the good thing about when we were writing through lockdown was we had so much time. And there were certain people that I had based, like, because the way we wrote was I wrote a lot of one person and she wrote a lot of the other person. Then we'd bring it together and edit it. And in the back of my head, I knew, okay, well, this character at this point is very much my best friend from secondary school. And I would just phone my best friend and I'd say, hey, I know you're not doing anything because we're all locked in our houses. Will you come on Zoom and read this? <laughs> and then just the way that they said things, I would be like, oh, that word needs to be changed. The, the phrasing of that. And I was genuinely so lucky that it happened during a really shit time. Yeah, it was a terrible time for us here and especially in New York. It was just awful. Um, I know that I did one original play on Zoom um, and um, we rehearsed every week and then we did it. We had an audience and stuff. 
and uh, it was an interesting experience, but of course not the same thing as yeah. getting together and, and doing the play. We done the same thing. That's how we raised the money to book theaters and things, but we done it as a rehearsed reading type of, like we, sure. we made sure everyone knew it wasn't going to be very good. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Sometimes it can be very good, oh. you know, it really just depends. Sometimes I've seen like some of my friends done university plays and things over Zoom, and I was like, "Okay, this was brilliant," but with me in charge, like the technical <laughs> side of it wasn't going to be great. That's but always it, tough. That's yeah. tough to get together. It's tough to get the people in as well, like because yeah, it's all people have been doing anyways, staring at computer screens. Um, <laughs> but what I want to ask you, and these these are my favorite stories of my entire life, and the reason why I started the podcast. Do you have a favorite funny or crazy story from drama school? From drama school? Oh, I, I mean, guess, in the industry uh, in general. Uh, well, I have so many. <laughs> I mean, I have had a long life of crazy stories, but uh, drama school, uh, again, is almost similar to the, uh, to the initial story I said about being in the fifth grade. Um, you know, a wonderful director named Henry Betcher, an old man, but one who knew British theater and, and, and uh, he was a wonderful director. And uh, he cast me when I was 17 and a half in, as, uh, as Madame Arcati in Blythe Spirit. And I just, that was the first time uh, within a fairly professional milieu because it was all very talented uh, young people at that time, but to play a character that was 45 or so much older than I was as a young woman was the first time that I ever really experienced that. And it was one of the most memorable, greatest experiences of my career. Other than playing Eleanor in Lion and Winter with the great Jason Miller. I don't know whether you remember Jason. He wrote that championship season, the play which won the Pulitzer Prize. And he was the priest in the movie, The Exorcist, The Young Priest. Yeah. And he and I did a great version of Lion in Winter, which was just smashing. And those experiences, like the one playing this older woman when I was so young, those are the experiences that really stand out, mm -hmm. whether they are in drama school or in uh, your professional life. It's the times when you really feel like you've accomplished something that's extraordinary or out of the realm of normality. And uh, uh, so that situation in drama school was very, very uh, special. I, I want to talk to you now about um, something that I'd never heard of. And I, I just stumbled across it as I was doing my research. And it's, I, I hope I'm saying this correctly. Uh, I don't know why I'm sort of questioning myself. The Moose Murders, which was a show on Broadway that, closed on its opening night yes yes oh god and you were part of it obviously what what happened and what was that night like well there's a there's an article i wrote about it uh, in esquire magazine you can actually get it online really easily uh, i think it's 1983 uh classic comedy moose murders and then it's june gable um, and um, it's a really interesting, you, you'll have a lot of laughs, I think. Um, I'll also it link it in just the show notes for everyone else to read. To, yeah, oh, they can definitely do it online. You just go right onto that to Esquire magazine, classic comedy, 
1983 Broadway, June Gable. And um, that's all the link that you need, but it's a, um, it was a total disaster from beginning to end. It was something unlike, it was, may I say, if not the one of the biggest disasters Broadway has ever seen. So it's sort of like a, a, a very strange uh, accolade to wow. be in one of the worst productions. <laughs> but want to hear something funny. This After they closed it, they closed it on opening night. The second night, there were lines around the block trying to get in to see this disaster. So you'll never know. You know, they were furious that, <laughs> that the show had closed. Well, I do hear that then the Lady Diana musical that's currently on Broadway is terrible. And um, I heard that's that. why it's so popular. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't watched it myself. I know there's a video out there, but it's I'm just kind of like, I'm all right for that. <laughs> well, you know, when you're doing a show about somebody so iconic, I almost don't think that it matters whether the show is kitsch or good or a great drama or not. I think people are going to want to see the subject matter and there's a lot of fascination around her. I, I just think as long as it's like I said on a podcast not long ago with Dina Manoff from Greece, I said the biggest thing that they did wrong with Greece too was calling it Greece. It could have possibly been really good if they just pitched it as this new thing. But how could you ever like expect to recreate what that film was? And I think sometimes like if you would have just put a random name on this musical instead of Lady Diana's, I think it possibly might have done OK. But I think attaching a big name to something like um, imagine if they made a sitcom now and called it something like um, the Friends Kids or the Gellers Kids associating something with Friends instantly makes it that much difficult more difficult to be good or whereas if they'd have just said okay this is a sitcom about six kids and it's kind of like based on friends but we're not going to say friends probably would have done really well yeah that's interesting I think that's true and uh, uh, I, I think it's always a, a, an amazing experience I've done so much television comedy that you know you do something that you think is really wonderful and is going to be a huge hit and then you do something like Friends, which suddenly turns into this galvanizing success. And I remember Matt LeBlanc uh, turning to me, uh, and they were very young at the time and inexperienced, most of them. And I remember he turned to me and said, do you think this is gonna make 13 uh, episodes? And I remember saying, you never know. <laughs> and then boom, it was almost like overnight, this thing becomes- Global phenomenon. A phenomenon. And, and, you know, you have people, I, I've met people coming over from Asia and from places, you know, Bangkok and, and Korea, and, and they come in and when I say I am Estelle on Friends, they go completely crazy. I, some of my youngest memories of television are Friends. It used to be on on a Saturday morning on E4 in Britain. And it, they used to run like three or four episodes back to back. And I always remember watching it. And then I got slightly older and there was this sort of like inquisitiveness of no, of wanting to know what Friends was. And I bought the DVD box set and uh, I watched it start to finish and was like, okay, this is a good TV show. And then I'd say maybe three or four years later. So when I was about 17, 18, I, um, 
I, I was watching the DVD box set and one of my friends happened to come in and he'd never watched Friends. And I think I was on season two of Friends. So I gave him season one, the DVD. And he just lives right across the road from me. I said, go and watch it. And then he would keep coming back and he'd be like, I've finished season one. It's great. Can I have season two? And I was always a season in front of him. So, mm. and I've now got him fixed on friends there was a tiktok video i'm not sharing it because i don't want anyone to steal it and it's somebody that's turned the theme tune into a first dance wedding song and i played ah. it to my friend the other night and he was like well i hope whoever i get married to likes friends because that's the song and i was like no it's not that's mine i was like i found that i'm having it so yeah like you know here's the ironic thing is that i've worked for those producers before i did uh, three shows or four shows, maybe even five. I did two television pilots that didn't make it and then three shows that went on for a period of time. And they were wonderful too. It's hard to say what made this show so smashing because yeah. I know that a couple of the shows I did, one for HBO for them, one for CBS, two television pilots, they were equally good, but didn't have that magic thing. There's just a sense of charm. With friends. That's right. Is it we something on We all know a Ross. We all know yeah. a Rachel. We all know a Joy. That's and right. I, I think that's especially why it's clicked in Britain because you see a lot of TV shows that don't translate well across the Atlantic back and forth. And I think just Friends was really universal, even though it was such an American TV show and a lot of it, it bases on American culture and a lot of it shaped American culture. Yeah. It wasn't like when you sent it over here, it wasn't like literally just sending an American flag in a packet and say, here, watch this. Mm -hmm. It was really universal and really transferable. And I think that's the main kicker of Friends. And I still think that even though what Friends, was that the 20th anniversary reunion they just done? I think it was. I, 20th I think it was because I think um, even that's even why it's not just a worldwide phenomenon I think that's why it's a timeless phenomenon and we're still well, watching another, it the day I think another reason for for its success is the fact that it was a great ensemble show and yeah. the six of them stayed together fought together loved together did everything together and then the rest of us that were peripheral around them it was sort of like nobody ever pitched a fit there was never any kind of anger or uh, a terrible experience on the set. Everything was homogeneous and people were respectful and they would compliment each other. And even if you were doing a small bit on the show, somebody would always, one of the six or somebody would always come over and say, oh, that was really funny. And gee, you were great. It never got to that point, And this is very rare in our business where there was, you know, fisticuffs, anger, emotional outbursts, nothing like that. And I think ever. Yeah, I, I, I think you can tell as well. I think that's very... Yeah, we, everybody apparent. loved each other. Yeah. I, I want to take a quick break from Friends because I want to ask you one of my favourite questions of all time and then we're going to jump right back into Friends. Thank if you were booked to do a one-month show in the West End or Broadway, you can pick, and you were doing a two-person show and the... Um, producer and director come and say to you june listen we've got as much money as we can possibly have so with no financial restraints who do you want to be your co-star you can pick anyone in the world oh my gosh that is really that's a phenomenal question <laughs> i mean uh i would prefer uh, i think uh to work 
with someone very daring and unusual. Um, oh my God, what is his last name? Tom, um, you know, that uh, he was in um, The Revenant, um, a very outrageous actor. Hardy? Is he British? Tom Hardy, wild man, uh, a wonderful, wonderful, rich actor. Um, I think also, um, I'm trying to, to think of that wonderful actor. Um, oh, um, Christian Bale, who I yes. think is fascinating and, and deep and complex and plays complicated people. You see the, the process in his eyes. I mean, there's so many wonderful British uh, 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 actors. Um, also, there's a Scottish actor that I adore. I know him personally, uh, Brian. Um, I don't know, uh, uh, Brian, um, um, why am I blanking on, on these names? Uh, I, I, but, uh, uh, oh, he does so much in America. I'll think of it. I'll think of his name and I'll, I'll but, but, you know, I there's can't so think many either, wonderful... which is going to be, oh, he's an everyone's going to lynch me. <laughs> I know, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to be lynched for this too, because, because I know him, but for some reason I'm blanking on his name. But there are so many wonderful, wonderful British uh, and Scottish actors. Alan Cummings is wonderful. Yes. Too. Um, so many that I love and adore over, over the years um, that I've known. Um, so, you know, any one of those would be, and, and frankly, you know, I worked in the West End uh, for a couple of months. I did a sh an American show called uh, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. And uh, we did that in, in London on the West End at the Duchess Theatre. It was a great experience. Really was. I'd come back and work with anybody. <laughs> Just Doesn't anyone. Doesn't have to be famous. As long as the paycheck's there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Listen, I've, I've worked for the theatre for many, many, many years. Uh, and uh, I, I have, in the theatre, you don't make a lot of money. Yeah. So unless you're a huge, huge star. So. Yeah, you've got to really love it. Um, but I want to jump back into Friends now and I want to get sort of right into it. What was the audition process like for Friends? Well, that was really interesting because I came in as myself, like when I played the nurse, just came in, no makeup, you know, my hair just as it was. It was shorter at the time. And I think I was wearing a little suit. And uh, I, I just came in and did the, the audition and the producers were just kind of like, mm. and then Kevin Bright uh, just turned to me and said, boring. He said, go away and come back and do something crazy. <laughs> and they said, come back tomorrow, four o'clock PM. You'll be the only person there, June. We know you can do this go away, have overnight and come back and do something that's going to knock our socks off. And so I left and I was beside myself. I didn't know what to do. And then on the way back in Los Angeles, I stopped off at this place for some reason. I passed it as I was trying to get to my, pla my place in Hollywood. And it was called Wilshire Wigs. And I walked in, I thought, maybe a wig will give me the idea. And I look up as soon as I walked in and there's a whole row of these Dolly Parton wigs, big blonde bouffant wigs. And I, there was one right in the middle. And I said, can I see that one? 
And she took it down and I put it on and I looked so bizarre in this huge tuft of blonde hair. (laughs) And then I went home and I just thought of the idea of the cigarette. I had a big corned beef sandwich and I went into that audition with the cigarette and the sandwich and the wig. And I put this extreme makeup on and six inch nails and they fell off the chair. (laughs) And of course, you know, they're writing they wrote that script and their writing is so wonderful and funny that when you just apply some of that physical stuff that you know to do on top of their great writing, you know, the magic happened. I was going to ask you about like the character and that, but I think you've just answered that question of where, but did you draw from anyone that you knew is like, could you say like, Oh yeah, the voice was my mom or my auntie yes uh, i i did uh, i did draw on a couple of uh, people a, a little some little a little bit from the people in the business but mostly when i growing up in brooklyn new york you know where that accent came from and where her vocal thing came from <laughs> um my father uh, had a dress shop and these women worked in the dress shop pauline ida and may and they always went to the beauty parlor and had their hair done. They smoked incessantly. They took a shot of whiskey sometimes after work and they talked like that. And they sat around smoking, you know, when the when the customers didn't come in and they said, did you see what she looked like? And did you know that he was screwing around with another woman while they were married? And I just thought that's that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you draw from your life. That it it was just magic. Um, (laughs) What I also like to ask everyone, and you can you don't have to answer. Did um anything from set make it home with you? You mean uh, you mean clothing wise? Anything like? Did you take any props? Any costume? Sure, I still have the pink her pink nail polish, and I have actually a pair of her eyelashes, and I have her lipstick. And I also, I used to come with that blonde wig. We never washed it. To this day, it's never <laughs> been washed. It's like a bird's nest by the end of 10 years. And I used to come in in a, in a plastic shopping bag. And I had that blonde wig, that Dolly Parton wig in my bag. And I still have it. I mean, when you eventually need it, that's the retirement fund, isn't it? Well, I actually wore it for a couple of interviews um, I actually wore it for play. I, I can't remember, but uh, uh, I did a few interviews for magazines and they asked me, could you, could you, would you mind looking like Estelle? And so I actually used it then. I, I, did you ever get reimbursed for the wig? Were they ever like, Here, here's your money back? No, <laughs> no, I never did. I never did. <laughs> uh, and, you know, of course, uh, uh, I, I wore a fat suit as well because, I, uh, you know, I'm uh, only about five feet and I, I weigh only about 102 pounds and I was playing her kind of hefty. Yeah. So I did wear some padding and old baggy clothes, that kind of thing. Do you have a favorite behind the scenes story from friends? Oh gosh, there's so many, there's so many um, experiences that I had uh, there. I remember that um, uh I had a series of cards made up for Stell Leonard Talent Agency, and they all wanted one on the set, you know. So I gave them out to uh, to everybody in the set, and 
you know, there were always some wonderful things going on. And um, uh, I remember certainly some of the big stars, uh, the, the, the really famous Hollywood stars that I met on the set that were always fascinating uh, to get to know. One was Brad Pitt, who I actually met one morning. He was coming to see Jennifer Aniston, of course, and it was right prior to their marriage. And um, I remember getting breakfast and he was getting breakfast and he had under his arm this huge amount of architectural designs. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, there's an actor who has architect, he showed them to me and uh, he opened them up and he says, well, I, I, I'm interested in architecture very intelligent. And when you see a Brad Pitt movie, you think, oh, a stud, you know, somebody who's kind of like, uh, you know, a sexy guy who's like, doesn't think too deeply. But this man was brilliant, really, very intelligent, as well as uh, very attractive. Uh, and it was a it was a really interesting experience meeting with him and having that conversation. I, I have yeah. to ask, because Phoebe is my favorite friend and always has been for as long as I can remember. And I believe the episode's called The One Where Estelle Dies. I'm pretty sure. And she does that impersonation. What What were your thoughts when you first seen that episode? Were you like, um, were you phoning Lisa and well, being like, I'll give you some tips? I didn't, no, I didn't pay any attention to that. All I know is that it was the funniest thing when they told me that she died. And that's the producer called me up on the phone and said, are you sitting? And I said, why? And he said, well, I hate to tell you this, but Estelle died. And I thought, who the hell is Estelle? What is he talking about? Who I don't know anybody named Estelle. It took me a while to understand that he was talking about my character. Yeah. The character's dead. And the reason why they did that um, is because they were moving Joey. And rather than taking me, they wanted to take him out of the Friends, which I think was a mistake myself, but they wanted to take him out of the whole Friends milieu and put him in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, we all give watched him a that new season. Agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's again, probably would have been a really good season if it wasn't Joy Tribbiani in Friends. Listen, I had a great idea. I said, what if she has a granddaughter? She went to L.A. and she trained her to be an agent. And it's me as I really am. But they didn't want to hear it. They said, no, we don't want anybody that's connected to his story. And and I thought that was not uh, I didn't think it helped them with that. Yeah, series. No, I, I thought that series should have been a success. Yeah. One of the things that I always thought, and this is just since I started drama school and I, I knew how sort of crazy drama lecturers and drama teachers are. Do you know the episode where um, Monica gets her ID stolen and they, somebody steals her identity and they go to like a dance class? I always thought Estelle should have been an acting teacher as well as an agent. And I always there thought- There was that... one episode. Uh, I don't know whether you remember that one. There was one episode where I went to see Joey in a play. Yeah. And I was outside of the office. Most of the time, they wanted me either on the phone or they wanted me in the office. And sometimes they would tape uh, a phone conversation and they would throw it in, you know, or they would use it where they wanted. They wanted her there. Hmm. You know, but yeah. I think it's a great idea. You know, I always thought that she should just, she's that type of person that's very, that would have been that crazy stereotypical drama lecturer. Cause I found notebooks um, not long ago from my first stint at drama school before I dropped out. 
and I had wrote across one page. If this man wasn't a drama lecturer, he would have been sectioned by now. Um, like I've said throughout the podcast, one of my favorite things in the entire world are crazy theatrical stories. And um, we're going to play a game now and it's called Stage Right or Stage Shite. And basically the three stories, one is made up by our producer, Heather, and two have been sent in from listeners around the world. And it's our job to find out which one is the made up one. I have their answer in a sealed envelope. So um, it's one of the greatest things that I've ever decided to do in my life. Some of the stories I tell them on nights out at parties, some of my favorite things in the entire world. So number one, a director friend of mine likes to talk about a woman who came into an audition wearing a long skirt. She performed a song with a big belt at the end. And when she got to it, her tampon shot out and hit the floor. This is the first time I've read these questions. Uh, uh, number two, I was in a production of The Wedding Singer. And there's one scene where the main character starts taking shots. One of the cast members decided it would be funny to replace the water in the shot glasses with micellar water and then they just put in brackets that removes makeup it wasn't funny number three i was in hairspray and we had a bit of a rat problem at the theater one night as the lights came up for the interval a stunned rat fell from the light bar landed on an audience member and then died in the aisle oh my god so now, two of so those now, are true one of them is so a lie two of those two of those are true and one of them is a lie is a lie so uh, I don't know. I'm thinking um, that maybe the the I mean, I feel like number one, it either has to be true or my co-producer. Yeah, the rat, the rat thing could be true because yeah. uh, uh, you know you you have there there are examples, especially in the old theaters of of rats in the old buildings in New York. There's plenty of mice and rats. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I think I'm going to go for number one as the lie, which is the the, the tampon uh, the, one. Tampon. I would too. Right. Okay. I'm going to open the envelope, but I've just remembered a story I want to tell you just because it reminded me of Estelle. And I remember talking about it when it first happened. So once I've found out, I'm going to tell you. Um, I've, I've got new envelopes for this. It was number two. So there was no wedding singer taking the shots. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> the story I want to tell you is um, just because I, I immediately thought of Estelle when this happened, but only just remembered about it. I was um, sending out podcast invites in the, um, the summer and I'm not going to mention any names, but it was a pretty high up person that I was trying to get on the podcast. And in about five minutes after sending the email, their agent emailed me back and said, hi, Ingram, really thank you, thankful for your offer, but I don't know where she is right now. And then just signed her name. She literally just wrote, hi, Ingram, thanks for the offer, but I don't know where she is right now. I haven't spoke to her in years. Thank and I was just like, that's an Estelle. Like that could have been an yeah. Estelle. Like, oh, I don't know where she is right now. Was she her agent? Apparently so. Ah, ah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, my agents are really wonderful. I mean, everything that my all fan mail or anything that comes through comes through them. Yeah. And they're really good people. They're really sweethearts. Are you um have you got any upcoming projects or are you planning on doing anything? Um, there is sort of something that I'm talking to a friend of mine who's uh, a writer. Uh, and, and there is something we're talking about, unable to really uh, discuss it unless it becomes a little firmer. Maybe at some point, um, I'll certainly get in touch with you if, if yes, you go ahead. Yes, you shall. Because we're going to write it together and, uh, and do it. 
either as a one woman show or as a show which will employ one or two other people. Definitely oh, I, one other person. I'm actually quite jealous that you're about like at the beginning of the process again, because I'd love to go right back to the beginning. It was such a fun Yeah, I've process. done a lot of uh, research on this person. She's a real person. And so uh, I've done a lot of research on her, uh, but um, not quite ready to talk about it. You're writing and, the Lady Diana sequel musical, aren't you? Uh, no, no, no. Good God. Uh, <laughs> but then uh, uh, I just finished a, a movie with Ray Romano, which um, is under, uh, untitled right now. Uh, he's always wanted to write his own movie. And he wrote this uh, very uh, interesting family movie about uh, his life, uh, um, in Queens, New York, a big Italian family, his wife's Italian family. And it was a lot of fun, a great cast and uh, a lot of fun to do. I'm loving hearing all of this now because it was such a dark 18 months for the whole entire industry. And now every week when I ask somebody, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm up for this and I'm, I'm doing this. And I'm like, life yeah. is like, it's like it's reset itself and we're all it's getting back. It's coming back. Bit by bit, it's coming back. And, and he... Uh, um, he's such a nice and good person. And he was a wonderful director too. I was very surprised, but of course he would be. I mean, such a, such a smart uh, and clever man, but he, uh, he was a terrific director to work with. And one of the first movie sets that opened up after COVID, after yeah. the lockdown. But we're coming yeah. to the end of the podcast now. Thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, I've been such a huge fan of yours for so long and it's been so lovely to get to know you a little bit more is there anywhere that people can find you on social media do you have a website anything like that uh i'm on i do have uh not really a website i mean these websites spring up and you don't know who wrote them <laughs> i don't even know who wrote this stuff on wikipedia some of it isn't even true so i i i, I don't really uh, get too involved with that i don't have my own website like a lot of a lot of people do, but I am on Facebook and um, uh, always welcome a Facebook friend. Always. Yes, um, same here. Yeah, I'm on all of the social medias. I'm obnoxious enough to try and post all of my life everywhere. Uh -uh. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Genuinely, I've had so much fun. Yes, and I have too. It was lovely to meet you. Yes, it was. So, and it, remember, whenever you're coming to Scotland, I will give you the oh. grand tour. It's been my dream. Get the flights booked. <laughs> I will try. But I will let you get back to normal life. Thank you so much for coming on. I've had such You're a welcome. Time it was you. lovely. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. And there we have it. Another episode of Drama School Dropout, episode 64 completed. Thank you so much to June for coming on the podcast. And make sure to follow June on Facebook. That is the only social media she has. And make sure then to go and follow me on all of the social medias down below, which you all know is just at ingram noble and if you're feeling extra generous please leave a rating and a review on the podcast it helps us out so much you don't even know and it's free so why not and remember if you have a story for stage right or stage right please email us at drama school dropout pod at gmail.com and remember to click that subscribe button so you are notified every tuesday when there is a brand spanking new episode of drama school dropout as per usual, I will be back again next week with a brand spanking new episode, so make sure to come back next Tuesday. Have a great week. Stay safe. I love you. Drama school dropout No graduation day for you 
Something new, trying to scoot up.